0: Planet Worker, a world in development. Pakistan, July 2012. Pakistan in July is hot, seriously hot. Exiting from the airport at 2.30 in the morning, I met by a 30 degree blast of air and a driver, tired and sweating amongst a gaggle of taxis, hawkers and hoods looking for an easy mark. It's projected to be 36 by 7 in the morning, rising to 46 by afternoon, and aircon is a must. The city's fragile power grid trips repeatedly and the guest house's noisy generator kicks in and out for what's left of the night. There's very little chance of any sleep, never mind a late morning. Hours later I'm groggy from the combination of heat, travel and a restless night, and strong early morning coffee becomes a necessity. Food in hot climates can be a danger, and any contamination can put you out for days. Equally, protein cooked in oil presents a higher risk, so I deem the pre-fried eggs at breakfast a definite no-no. I bemused the kitchen staff and a few other guests by giving elaborate instructions for two hard-boiled eggs and two slices of toast. ...as my choice for the week. No matter. I'm satisfied and healthy and a couple of days later notice that hard-boiled eggs are suddenly very popular as other guests follow suit. Security concerns shape almost every aspect of daily life in Pakistan. City roads are blocked with concrete barriers. Buildings surrounded by barbed wire fences. Police and military with guns are everywhere... And no one seems to hang about. I learned that on the street the key is to keep moving, not be conspicuous and look as if you have a reason to be where you are or where you're going to. Most importantly, rely on the knowledge, advice and accompaniment of your local contacts. My colleagues at the Pakistan office are an impressive lot. Last year they won the Global Corporate Award for Team of the Year and I can see why. They're hard-working, committed, urbane and smart. A can-do culture pervades and they're not too concerned about cutting a few corners to make things happen. A number of visitors have arrived for a series of meetings and they're genuinely appreciative of our visit. There's also poignant history in the air. Two of the participants in the meeting are previous directors of this office and together with the current incumbent, We have ten years and three generations of leaders in the same room. Among the delighted banter and photos, memories are bittersweet. One of them experienced a lethal attack by insurgents on a satellite office under her management, with the resultant death of three staff. The palpable trauma and memories of lost colleagues endures for her and for others. The briefing gets underway and it's quickly obvious how terribly challenging this country is. First up, Pakistan has endured a string of national disasters in recent history that defy credulity. A devastating earthquake in 2005 and another one in 2011. The massive floods of 2010 covering a fifth of the country's land mass and displacing 20 million people, almost the entire population of Australia. If this wasn't enough, Pakistan endures protracted tribal and political conflict, leaving it continually teetering on the twin precipices of coups or collapse. Corruption is endemic at all levels of government. Even the current president's nickname, Mr. 10% is a result of his penchant for skimming government contracts. Given this context, I'm enormously impressed by the ambition and innovation demonstrated by the local programmes. A huge sanitation initiative is benefiting 7 million people in the space of a year, involving close to 4,000 communities. A project focused on adolescent girls addresses bewilderingly complex cultural and religious challenges to promote education and health rights. A disaster risk reduction programme involves children to protect villages across a number of provinces. It's exciting stuff and I can't wait for three days of meetings to be over to visit a project site. On the fourth day we head out early for a visit to a project in a rural village an hour out of Islamabad. It's blindingly hot, dusty and dry as we are escorted around the village by a group of wise and Pakistani men. No women in sight. Together we review a gravity water purification system that also serves as an aquaculture project promoting both health and income. Simple, clever. During the break I get a laugh from the group by declaring Pakistan is cool compared to Australia and the conversation loosens up. It becomes clear that the local leaders are mostly retired military officers now redirecting their skills to developing their village. I realise the local community has in an indirect way profited from the huge Pakistan military apparatus which is the 7th largest in the world, and soaks up 20% of the entire national budget. With abysmal education in civil society, and good jobs scarce to come by, the military offers many poor young men the opportunity to get educated and build up an income base. This role also ensures the military endures as a social institution with enormous influence throughout Pakistan. Within the military, and indeed the entire political apparatus, operates the Inter-Services Intelligence Service, known colloquially as ISI. Infamous as protectors of Al-Qaeda, organizers of the regional drug trade, and warmongers, these Machiavellian political operators are one of the most influential intelligence services in the world. Their tentacles reach into all aspects of Pakistani life and society and, as I'm soon to realise, into mine. As we ride back through the local town, our car is flagged down by a young plain-clothed man surrounded by a number of uniformed police personnel. He has pointed us out specifically to his colleagues and comes straight to my window. He demands and promptly disappears with my passport while the others surround our car. My colleague whispers, ISI, and leaps out of the car to retrieve my passport and hopefully remedy the situation. The intelligence officer is clearly in charge and in no mood to let us go. My concern grows as it emerges they've been tailing us all morning and knew we were heading back through the town. We are given no option but to follow to the local police station. I'm ushered into a room while loud and angry negotiations break out between my colleagues and a number of police and what appear to be more intelligence officers. As the arguments progress, it's become obvious that this is going to require resolution from higher up and calls are made back to Islamabad. After an hour I'm sweating, both from the heat and from the thought of spending the night in this dismal police station. A bewildering array of policemen plainclothes officers and unidentified others parade in and out of the room seemingly with nothing to do except to examine or intimidate me i'm briefly interrogated on my travel permissions passport reason for being in pakistan and my organization politely forcefully i'm acutely aware of a backstory to the sensitivity A year before, one of ISI's most infamous protected assets, Osama Bin Laden, was assassinated by a crack US military squad inside his family compound in Abbottabad, in the hills of KPK province on the northern border. The assassination mission was captured in a Hollywood-style movie but the story of how he was found and identified is famous amongst the NGO community and has profound implications for NGOs operating inside Pakistan. The story goes that a CIA operative inserted himself as a doctor in an NGO children's vaccination program and used DNA samples from those using the services to track a Bin Laden connection. According to this story, bin Laden was identified by the DNA of two of his children who were vaccinated, leading to the daring assassination attempt. Even if the story was hard to believe, ISI were furious at the killing of their prized asset on Pakistan's soil, and so started a campaign of suspicion and intimidation of international NGO workers. I may just be the latest in their crosshairs. In between, my wife calls and we have a surreal conversation on family and domestic matters while those in the room try too hard to be inconspicuous while listening in. After 90 minutes, I'm getting more anxious and I'm ready to call in help when some news comes in. Intelligence and police in Islamabad see no reason to hold me any longer. Good news, but no one in the station wants or can take the decision to release me. Who can? It turns out we need the permission of the district police chief, though no one seems to know his whereabouts. A colleague rushes off and tracks him down at the local court and he issues the release order by phone. I'm in the car in the second, clutching my passport and cooling down as we race back to Islamabad. I'm surprised as my local colleague starts apologising profusely for the incident, embarrassed by his countrymen. And worried for me I assure him I'm relieved and thankful but I don't think he believes me we debrief later in the office and I convince him I'm fine I reflect on my visit that evening and decide that I really like Pakistan it's a complex country with enormous political and societal challenges but also a resilient and interesting population and culture people can and do make a difference here At three the following morning, I'm tense as I go through the airport formalities in my departure, wary that the watchful officials may pick me out. I have my phone ready to dial for help as a precaution. At last, I reach the front of a very long line. The passport official gives me a big smile, hopes I have had a good visit, and mock orders me to please visit Pakistan again. Now there's an official invitation I can't refuse.